0: This is Guns and Butter.
1: There's
2: the New York Times announced roughly two weeks ago on a front page story that on September 11th, six controllers made their own audio tape in concert with each other. On that day, before the end of the day someone representing himself it was a male as an FAA supervisor confiscated the tape and this is reported in the times cut the tape up into multiple small pieces deposited the pieces in multiple waste baskets and removed them from the center or centers
0: I'm Bonnie Faulkner today on guns and butter Michael Dietrich Michael Dietrich is a pilot, an environmental writer, a Jungian psychoanalyst, and a documentary filmmaker currently working on a series of documentaries about 9 11 entitled 091101 The Heart of the Matter. His presentation, A Professional Pilot's View of the Events of 9 11, was given in Toronto on May 28, 2004 at the International Citizens' Inquiry into 9-11.
2: Good morning, everyone. I'm going to make my talk relatively brief this morning and uh, then be open to questions. Fellow 9-11 truth seekers, my name is Michael Dietrich. I'm a practicing Jungian psychoanalyst for the last 30 years in Mill Valley, California, near San Francisco. I became a political activist during the 1960s, as did so many others of you, in response to U.S. imperialism during the Vietnam War. Our government's imperial ambitions have increased exponentially in the years since Vietnam, with countless examples, all of which I'm sure you know. During the 1970s, I gradually shifted my focus as an activist from political to global environmentalism. I traveled throughout the Eastern, Mid, and South Pacific and the Caribbean as an investigative reporter for a diving publication named Undercurrent. My special interest has been the coral reefs of the Caribbean and the Pacific. More relevant to my speech today is that my environmental reporting took me to numerous unusual places where knowing how to fly airplanes became imperative. I would like to briefly outline my pilot qualifications to you. I hold all pilot ratings except for air transport pilot, which is required to fly commercial airliners. My ratings include both single and multi-engine land-based aircraft, instrument ratings in both types of aircraft, commercial, and I also have a significant amount of seaplane time, but not a rating. I've been an active pilot since 1987. During that time, I've partnered in or owned single-engine high-performance aircraft with full instrument capability. Since 1993, with rare exception, all of my flights have been in what professional pilots call the system. This is pilot jargon for controlled flight using navigational and communication radios and satellites under clearances issued initially and moment-to-moment in direct and constant contact with FAA air traffic controllers. Specifically, this means that I fly by instrument flight rules, or IFR. I would like to note here that all air carrier aircraft fly constantly and without exception by these same rules explicitly. With more than 3,000 controlled aircraft in the skies over North America at any one time, no matter what the weather conditions may be. It's easy to imagine the necessity for an elaborate, coordinated system of choreography. On the big FAA screen in Chicago, it's like watching a near-perfect ballet with 3,000 dancers. On September 11, 2001, four scheduled airliners, with which you are now tragically familiar, while flying according to instrument flight rules, were hijacked nearly simultaneously from three major airports on the east coast of the United States and used as weapons of mass destruction against three targets, World Trade Center Towers 1 and 2 in New York City and against the most heavily defended building in the world in the most heavily defended city in the world, the Pentagon in Washington, D.C., at approximately 5.50 a.m. Eastern Daylight Time on September 11th, 2001, I was awakened as usual, as I had been for many years, by Bob Edwards, who's the host of National Public Radio's morning program, Morning Edition. As I awoke, Edwards interrupted his regular programming to announce that there had been an, airline, an airplane crash into the North Tower of the World Trade Center. My first thought was, oh, expletive deleted, some stupid private pilot must have gotten disoriented on a sightseeing flight over New York, forgot to look outside the cockpit, and made the greatest mistake of his life. The reason for my gut reaction is that, uniformly, every time a general aviation pilot makes a gross error in judgment that threatens the security of property or persons. The FAA responds with extreme new restrictions on all general aviation flights which have a tendency to become permanent rules. The FAA, like all large bureaucracies, responds to change in a reactive mode exclusively. In other words, I thought, here come more restrictions for us pilots to follow every day. I could cite numerous examples over the last 20 years, however, I feel it is not necessary at this time. Much more importantly, within minutes, Bob Edwards announced that an airliner belonging to a major air carrier had hit the World Trade Center North Tower. He then left the air for several minutes to gather more information. Instinctively, I understood immediately that this was not an accident caused by an inattentive and unskilled pilot. Like virtually all of you, I felt that something terrifying and tragic had just occurred. I immediately called several of my closest friends, including other pilots, to wake them up to watch the drama as it unfolded. I instantly began to do what all professional pilots do regarding aircraft accidents. I began a rational analysis, looking for possible explanations for an event, which I knew in my gut could not have been accidental. As the next three uh, hijacking reports unfolded, and as United Airlines Flight 175, on which Alan Mariani's husband, Neil Mariani, died, slammed into the World Trade Center south, passed into the building, and disintegrated, I understood clearly that the United States was under attack by an unknown number of hijacked aircraft. My next thought was, where is NORAD? NORAD is the North American Air Defense Command, commissioned to defend North America, Canada, Iceland, and the Arctic. As I will make clear to you when I discuss standard operating procedures for both NORAD and the FAA, even in the case of a single suspected hijacking, the United States Air Force is under mandatory orders to launch defensive aircraft to perform an in-flight incident investigation to report their findings immediately to the National Military Command Center, or NMCC, inside the Pentagon, and to NORAD directly by voice. They are to signal by various flight maneuvers to the Captain of the Air and Flight that he must acknowledge by radio and or specific flight maneuvers, and must, if capable, accompany the fighter or fighters to the nearest safe landing area. I immediately asked myself, with four known simultaneous hijackings and strikes on the two symbolically most important buildings in New York City, why there was no response by the Air Defense Command. I've been asking this question for nearly three years. First alone, and now in cooperation with numerous colleagues within the 9-11 Truth Movement, I believe that we are moving much closer toward a definitive answer to these questions. Standard operating procedures for the defense of North America by the United States Air Force on September 11, 2001, had been suspended and nullified. This has become known within the 9-11 Truth Movement as the, quote, stand down, end quote. This means that an order from the highest level of our government must have been given to disrupt and prevent the mandatory coordinated defense response of the Air Defense System, or ADS. In a document titled And it's lengthy, but I'll uh, read it to you. ACC 113-SAOC, Volume 3, dated 30 May 1997. Air Defense Command and Control Operations. It states, the ADC is, quote, to provide Commander-in-Chief, and this refers to the President of the United States, in." North American Aerospace Defense Command, or SYNC norad commander Commander-in-Chief, which most people don't know is a military officer who holds equal power to the President to uh, release defensive aircraft to defend North America. The United States Atlantic Command, or Sync usacom to provide them with the means to detect, monitor, identify, intercept, report, and, if necessary, destroy any airborne object that may pose a threat to North America. In fulfillment of the Tactical Threat Warning Attack Assessment, they love jargon in the NORAD system, it's called the TW slash AA, the Tactical Threat Warning Attack Assessment, and to provide such information to collateral missions of NORAD, or North American Air Defense Command. I want to stress that the heading of this document states, quote, compliance with this order is mandatory. Although members of the Bush administration and the U.S. military at the highest levels repeatedly denied in the days following September 11, 2001, that there was no, quote, standing order, unquote, to shoot down commercial aircraft prior to September 11th, 2001. This document, from which I'm quoting, clearly shows that there was such an order. I and many other researchers continue to find these stories absolutely unbelievable. During the entire sequence of events on September 11th, the Commander-in-Chief, George W. Bush, who we believe, according to reliable sources, had been informed in near real time by his chief of staff, Andrew Card, of all four hijackings, and specifically of the strikes on both World Trade Center towers, continued for more than a half hour to read a story about a goat to a classroom of elementary students. There is a timestamp documentary video report that confirms President Bush failed to respond to the greatest national tragedy that has occurred on American soil in its 228-year history. If the commander-in-chief fails to uphold his duty to protect and defend the people of the United States of America, he is, of course, then, guilty of high crimes and misdemeanors punishable as prescribed by federal law and in a court of law. To date, the only charges that have been brought against Publicly elected or appointed officials of the government of the United States or against the United States military have been filed in federal court by attorney Phil Berg, who will be here over the weekend uh, with his client, Ellen Mariani, the widow of Neil Mariani, who, as I said earlier, was killed on Flight 175. Her story is extremely compelling. For those of you who are asking, what can I do, I urge you to support this RICO, or racketeering, lawsuit against President George W. Bush, Secretary of State Cheney, Secretary of Defense Donald Rumsfeld, and numerous other members of the Bush administration. In addition, I recommend a major campaign directed toward Eliot Spitzer, Attorney General of New York, to immediately convene a grand jury in New York City to investigate all relative evidence contained in the charges filed by Phil Berg on behalf of Allen. Evidentiary hearings are imperative. The surviving families and friends of all the victims of the greatest crimes ever committed against the people of the United States deserve no less than the complete truth about these crimes. Each and every one of the criminals must be brought to justice in courts of law, and punishment commensurate with their crimes applied fully. Only then can our collective grief begin to be healed? And can there be the beginning of the restoration of the true community on our planet for all species and all life on Earth?
0: You're listening to Michael Dietrich, a professional pilot's view of the events of 9-11. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter.
2: As an environmentalist, I've been watching very carefully for nearly 30 years, the deterioration of our environment, as I know all of you have. And the oil, coal, and gas industries, which are so strongly represented in our government, are the chief proponents of the continuing destruction of the atmosphere of the Earth. Not only is our system of government and free society at stake, but the lives of our children and our grandchildren and perhaps even the continued life on our planet hangs in the balance. Now, I'd like to give you a couple personal anecdotes before I close. I told you I'd make this a short talk. I I wanted to give you a very brief example of what controlled flight under instrument flight rules are like, so that you get a sense of how specific and exact the system and the choreography actually is. I used to be a partner in a telecommunications business in Monterey, California, and I would have to fly once or twice a week from San Francisco Bay Area to Monterey, no matter what the weather conditions were, because business is, after all, business. On the way to the airport, it is imperative that one talks directly to what's called flight service, which gives you precise and constantly updated weather information about your flight. Upon reaching the airport and starting your airplane you immediately must, before moving your airplane, obtain a direct clearance which is copied, quoted back to the controller, and confirmed by the controller, which governs the general outline of your flight. As flight progresses, and this flight is roughly 120 nautical miles in a nearly straight line, but passes through the very highly controlled, it's called Class Bravo or Class B airspace of San Francisco International. On a typical day in the clouds, as we say, I would have at least 100 conversations in an hour with air traffic controllers. Air traffic control always knows what every aircraft is doing. If there is a three-minute lapse of communication or less, the controller will begin emergency procedures. Furthermore, if your aircraft on an instrument flight plan departs from the assigned path by more than 15 degrees horizontally, or in most cases in very controlled airspace by more than 50 feet vertically, you will receive a call from air traffic control immediately saying state intentions. Obviously, if one does not state one's intentions, a series of standard operating procedures are put into action, often resulting, even among general aviation aircraft, in the launch of defensive aircraft to identify the problem and to invitingly, usually, accompany that aircraft to a safe landing place. Obviously, none of this occurred on September 11th. Furthermore the document that I just quoted to you Which comes from the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff and? Was in place on September 11th 2001 Was very puzzlingly Superseded by another document which I have here from the chairman of the Joint Chiefs and signed by Admiral Frey on June 1st 2001 roughly three months before the attacks I won't read you any of the technical details. You're welcome to um, come and see the documents afterward if you'd like. In this document, the best my researchers and I can tell, is that all military and civil law was superseded by this edict from the chairman of the Joint Chiefs. And all defense of North America was taken out of the military and civilian chain of command, and given explicitly and specifically to one person, the Secretary of Defense of the United States. At this point, we do not have absolute proof that Mr. Rumfeld issued the so-called stand-down order. Our research continues into this issue, but this document itself is very incriminating. As our research goes on, I'll continue to report and hopefully by the time our first film which is called 09.11.01, the heart of the matter comes out late this summer. We'll have definitive information about this document. As it stands now, it appears that the stand down was solely the responsibility of Mr. Rumsfeld.
3: Michael, there were war games on September 11th and uh, I can't help feeling it's like Plan F if Plan A and Plan B and Plan C and Plan D don't, aren't sold to the public. Plan F is, oh, this is why we failed, because we were having war games that day, and we were so busy, we, we missed this. Can you tell the public a little bit more about the war games, and do you think that that was a cover to mask a standout?
2: Yes, we have solid information that there were war games that day, and that part of the uh, war game event included the observation of alleged commercial aircraft that posed threats to various cities and other populated areas of the United States. From several sources with whom I've spoken, but whose information I have not yet verified, what are called blips on air traffic control radar screens. And again, you have to imagine an air traffic control center. In a center, which is a huge building, there are dozens of level screens with one controller at each screen, watching up to 25, maybe even 30 aircraft at a time and controlling each of their flights individually. During September 11th, numerous blips appeared, as far as I know, from Ohio eastward throughout the Northeast, that appear not to have been real aircraft, but were artificially created blips on the screens, which appear to have been an attempt to obfuscate and confuse the air traffic controllers as to what was going on. And this this may account for an still unexplained delay between the uh, identification of the first hijacking by the prime controller for Flight 11 at approximately 8.22, which is 23 minutes after the plane departed, and the notification from the FAA's designated hijacking coordinator, who was, by the way, on the job for the first time that day, which also remains unexplained. The delay in notification is exceptionally unusual. However, we do know that there's a great deal of speculation that these so-called blips, artificially created aircraft images on air traffic control screens, were at least partially explained as the cause for the delay. At any rate, to speak to that more, Carol, we do know that by 8.38, at the latest, the NORAD, hijacking coordinator, who is specifically an individual who must have direct voice contact with all calls from the FAA's hijacking coordinator, did receive the call from the FAA. We have that document. But final answer is yes, I believe that the war games that day were most probably an attempt to confuse the controllers and delay response.
4: Thank you very much, Michael Dietrich. That, that was extraordinarily interesting. As I understand it, you believe that this directive of some kind on June the 1st of 2001 meant that Rumsfeld was the person responsible for both for uh, stand-down orders if they occurred and would be required for any uh, attack on the, one of these planes. Is that right?
2: Yes, I do believe that that's the most likely explanation for the issuance of this document and secretary of defense rumsfeld has acknowledged publicly on cnn at one point several months ago that he co-authored this document with admiral fry and that's the last we ever heard of it
4: oh it would have had to have been approved by something would it not
2: yeah it was approved by the chairman of the joint chiefs I see. signed by admiral fry I see. And Mr. Rumsfeld, in a CNN piece, which we have not yet been able to obtain, right. seems to have gotten buried again, acknowledged that this document was issued on June 1st, 2001, three months before the attacks. Let me read you something very briefly. It says, among other things, in the event of a hijacking, uh, let me read the title. It's uh, from the Chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, Instruction dated 1 June 2001, aircraft piracy or hijacking and destruction of derelict airborne objects. This is instruction. In uh, paragraph 1, section A, it states specifically, when requested by the administrator of the FAA, that refers to, when requested by the administrator Department of Defense will provide assistance to these law enforcement efforts, meaning any law enforcement efforts to interdict a hijacking, let alone four of them. Pursuant to reference so-and-so, the National Military Command Center, which is located inside the Pentagon, where Mr. Rumsfeld was on that day, is the focal point within Department of Defense for providing this assistance. In the event of a hijacking, the NMCC, National Military Command Center, will be notified. And in flying, words like will, must, may have specific explicit meanings. The NMCC will be notified by the most expeditious means by the FAA. The NMCC, National Military Command Center, will, with the exception of immediate responses, as authorized by a number of tiny exceptions in reference D, will forward requests for Department of Defense assistance to the Secretary of Defense for approval. DOD assistance to the FAA will be provided in accordance with a variety of references, all of which appear to be meaningless. And this directly contradicts the standing orders from 1997 with their 98 revision.
4: The second question I was going to raise is perhaps less significant in that, in the light of that because uh, what I w- was going to ask was, how much do you know or can be found out about the communications between the flight control people and FAA and, and the Pentagon and, and, and so on? There have been conflicting reports about when different people heard the information And I I would like to know what you know about those things. And also, I guess, if you could comment on the extent to which the Pentagon, the U.S. military, will in any case have been tracking the skies of eastern North America with their own detection equipment.
2: I'm, I'm glad you asked that question. A part I decided to curtail, but which I will now tell all of you, During the winter of 2003, just before Carol created the wonderful first phase of this inquiry, a former military officer from the Air Force contacted me. And uh, I interviewed him on camera. For security and safety considerations, we gave this gentleman possession of the master for the interview for obvious reasons. During the interview, I asked him what his role was in the U.S. Air Force. He happened to have been a medium-ranking officer working within what are known as space operations in Cheyenne Mountain in Boulder, Colorado. In that same mountain, NORAD has Earth Operations, which is a separate but intimately interrelated department. All flying activities of any kind from the center of the earth up to 200 miles in space in a sphere of that dimension, all flying objects are tracked by NORAD. Again, in these documents, I have a significant number of details of the types of equipment that are used and how they're used and in which situations they're used. It goes on and on and on. Uh, What's significant in what I'm telling you now is that as I interviewed this young man, I asked a series of leading questions to tell me how small an object, in real time, 24 hours a day, is observed, logged, reacted to, and decided upon from within Cheyenne Mountain by either Earth Ops or Space Ops. And as we narrowed the questioning down, with each question he said, That's classified. I can't talk about that. Until I finally said, okay, let's cut to the chase here. Let's get to the first smallest object that is observed in real time, 24 hours a day, within that sphere. Can you tell me the size of that object? And this young man held up his right hand like this and said, picture a monkey wrench. So that should give you some idea of how precise. So this focus, this diversionary focus on what FAA knew, and ground-based radars knew, and NORAD local areas knew, is all obfuscation within Cheyenne Mountain. And for obvious reasons, when uh, you have a vehicle like Space Shuttle or the Hubble Telescope, where parts are being constantly played with and spacemen are walking around doing things with little tools. They have to know where every piece of space debris is, and they do. Yeah.
0: You're listening to Michael Dietrich, a professional pilot's view of the events of 9-11. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter.
4: Just to finish off then, if your interpretation of the June 1st order is correct, the military would have regarded it as necessary to keep Rumsfeld informed, and and they also had the ability to provide the information. Therefore, Rumsfeld's statements about uh, being surprised at uh, the explosion in the Pentagon must be absurd. He must have known, in fact, what was happening.
2: Does the word incredible mean anything to you? Yeah, none of of us who are researching these issues carefully believe anything that they've told (laughs) us. Yeah, sure. And their own documents completely contradict them on every level.
5: Thank you, Michael. Uh, We have been needing an expert on aviation. There are just so many questions, uh, like the chain of command. It would be very nice to see that on some kind of a chart where we could see where what we thought was the chain of command wasn't really the chain of command. And perhaps there was even some kind of uh, illusion created that because President Bush was sitting there in the classroom, he could not issue an intercept uh, shoot-down order, and also that Richard Myers was having breakfast on and on and on during the attacks, and he was unable to issue a shoot-down order, and uh, yet these people weren't even players in what you're saying this new document reveals.
2: They, are, they were not players, according to this document.
5: But the allusion to the American people and to the citizens of the world was that these guys were somehow not available to make the big decision.
2: Yes, Ian, absolutely. And uh, further, on the day of nine, on September 11, 2001, when President Bush was reading his goat story with his uh, young friends, there was, in the basement of that school, a mobile... Military Command Center, which was in constant contact with NORAD Cheyenne Mountain, with the National Military Command Center. If any of you have seen the amateur uh, video clip on the internet, it's in many places, a shot from within the school. You can see Andrew Card actually, with, and there's a timestamp on it, you can see Andrew Card informing the president by whispering in his ear twice once on the way in, and once when he's sitting there reading to the school children in very close proximity to the strikes on the uh, the second tower and then the significant turn of the third airliner back toward Washington. There was a mobile, and always is with the president, a mobile military command center for obvious reasons. It was there that day. So, it's completely illusory to think that the president and his staff did not know.
3: Well, that that sort of begs the question, too. President Bush was quoted twice as saying, when I saw the first plane crash into the building, I thought, gee, some lousy pilot. Now, is it possible with that kind of equipment that there could have been um, a real-time monitoring of what happened to the first tower that only the military was able to view? And Bush...
2: Um, y- yes, we, we think that in the, in the command center, especially because all of our suspicions lead to a probable conclusion that they were in collusion with whoever and whatever caused these incidents. It's my belief, I won't say that it's fact at this point, it's my belief that the reason President Bush slipped and said, well before there was any video, that he saw the plane hit the first tower, is that with prior knowledge, the military command center was watching the strike on the first tower. Further, another thing I want to add, Carol, is that we know, even though it's been denied in contradictory stories from the president to Cheney to Myers to Powell, a whole bunch of people, that defensive aircraft were not launched on that day until after the Pentagon was hit. We know that at least two F-15s were launched from Otis Air Force Base in Falmouth, Massachusetts. They were Air National Guard aircraft. Uh, These F-15s, by the way, for those of you who don't know, have a top speed of 1,875 miles an hour, as Nafiz points out repeatedly, as does Mike Rupert uh, and many others. They can obtain that top speed on full afterburner within two minutes of takeoff. And they were launched six minutes from Falmouth before the first tower was hit. Now, it's questionable whether they could have, even at full afterburner, prevented the first strike. But they were definitely capable of shooting down the second aircraft, or diverting it, or doing whatever they needed to. And we have some evidence now that these aircraft, uh, looking at their flight timelines, which are publicly available, were flying at, on the average, half to one-third full throttle on their way to New York. We don't know why precisely they did not finally arrive over New York City before the second strike, but they did not.
5: Okay, just a follow-up. I did not have a chance to show in the government official story that uh, actually there was quite an interchange documented by mainstream media between Vice President Cheney and the, it was either NORAD or the FAA. I think it was probably NORAD. It must have been NORAD. And uh, they asked him three times, should we engage? The plane, talking about Flight 77, was heading back towards Washington. And, uh, or 93, I'm talking about. Flight 93, sorry. The one that crashed in Pennsylvania was heading back towards what could have been the White House. And Cheney was asked three times, this plane is coming in, it's 80 miles out. Shall we engage, sir? And Vice President Cheney said, yes. And, sir, it's 60 miles out. Shall we engage? Yes, most definitely. And now, sir, it's 40 miles out. Shall we engage? Absolutely, yes. And then, all of a sudden, it crashed, and it took the Pentagon two hours to come up with the story that it was a passenger struggle, and they forced it to crash into a field. Now, that indicates that there was a fighter up there, ready to engage.
2: Again, I try as hard as I can to stay away from things I'm not absolutely certain of, mm-hmm. but if I may offer, as I do as a doctor, a medical opinion, yeah, I'm <laughs> in complete agreement. And you know how good those are. <laughs>
5: <laughs> because is it possible to have a conversation like that and say, shall we engage if there's a fighters on the ground? How can you engage Flight 93 from the ground?
2: There's significant eyewitness testimony that there was at least one unmarked aircraft, uh, identified repeatedly as being all white with no markings, trailing Flight 93. Again, I've tried to stay away in this brief talk from pieces of information that remain controversial even within the research community. My personal opinions are probably what all of yours are. It's my personal belief, given the scatter pattern of the wreckage, and I'm going to put a parenthesis in here. As I started my investigation, I went to a group of 12 top-level professional pilots with 30 or more years' experience, flying for airlines, flying from aircraft carriers, and then in the airlines. Uniformly, I've received nothing but agreement with my assessments, and simultaneously, you may not quote me. And no, I will not go on camera. Uh, Many of the pilots I've interviewed from major airlines who are still active have had their retirement funds threatened and their stock options threatened. And one airline in particular, United, has issued a memo to all pilots to cease and desist from discussing the events of September 11th at all. Back to Flight 93, one of the pilots I interviewed was not only a 30 year captain for one of the airlines in question, but was an on the ground NTSB crash site investigator. It is his opinion that the scatter pattern of the wreckage from Flight 93 is not possible unless the aircraft was destroyed in midair. Now there's a countervailing aeronautic theory it says, well, the plane was coming down so fast, and if you plunge an airplane with wings straight toward the ground and it reaches a certain terminal velocity, the plane will come apart. However, all the data we have so far indicates the plane was only flying at a, approximately 525 nautical miles an hour, which can't break up an airplane. And the evidence goes on and on. The scatter pattern stretches out in a diameter of at least five miles, whereas the government's been claiming that the plane was taken over by, or attempted to be taken over by courageous passengers, and it plunged into the ground. Those scatter patterns are about as big as half this room, so it's controversial evidence.
1: My question is about these rooms with all the uh, radar screens. Obviously, the, the person that's uh, tracking the, the plane that's in question, he, he would have uh, contacted NORAD, followed procedures. But w- what about the other radar airports? Wouldn't they kick in? Does that sort of thing kick in as well? Like, is there a network? Yes, let me,
2: let, let, Yeah. thank you for the question. Let me briefly describe the actual physical situation. Again, there are two types of air traffic control facilities in most developed countries. One is called an air traffic control center, and the other is called a terminal control center. The terminal control center controls air traffic in a certain radius around a major airport. The air traffic control center controls the same flights as they pass out of that area on the screens and go cross country. All controllers have access immediately to any information on any other screen in the United States. All they have to do is program it in. Let, let me show you the picture. Mm-hmm. I've been to numerous air traffic control centers. We're talking about rooms bigger than this auditorium that are underground. Currently, finally, the FAA has very high-quality radar equipment. They didn't used to when you saw Pushing Tin or whatever that movie was. They're sitting there with those vertical screens and freaking out about what they're seeing and not seeing. Um, Currently, any controller can see what's on anybody else's screen, and more importantly, at the uh, Boston Terminal Control Area and Northeast Control, which controls all of the Northeast, which is the uh, en route center. There are many dozens of controllers in one room at one time. Some of the reports I have are that the controllers were all talking to each other and watching what was happening. Normal chain of command was followed. The information was passed within minutes up the chain of command as per the manual and the end result was what we had. Now further, I want to add uh, an answer to this gentleman's question about the controllers. The New York Times announced roughly two weeks ago on a front-page story that on September 11th, six controllers made their own audio tape in concert with each other on that day, before the end of the day, someone representing himself, it was a male, as an FAA supervisor, confiscated the tape, and this is reported in the Times, cut the tape up into multiple small pieces, deposited the pieces in multiple waste baskets, and removed them from the center or centers. Another thing I want to add briefly is that a week before that, a man named Ed Ballinger, and this is public knowledge now, it's been published in numerous newspapers, who was the United Airlines so-called dispatcher for flights 11 and 93. I may have the numbers, definitely for flight 11, was in constant voice contact because each airline also has its own control system with each aircraft. So it's super redundancy. Mr. Ballinger reports that, and I have that... Uh, document here, too, for anyone to see, reports that on the day of September 11th, in the first hour after Flight 11 was declared a hijacking, he called his superiors more than, he states he called his superiors more than 100 times within the first hour and received no significant response of any kind from any superiors, that by the end of the day, he felt that he was going crazy. That's, I think, a quote. In addition, he says that his superiors came to his station, gave him six hours to resign after 34 years as a dispatcher at UA. He took one hour and resigned, went home and self-described had a nervous breakdown and went into psychotherapy for more than two years. He feels that he's back together and he's been subpoenaed by the Keene Commission to testify as to his experience on that day. And he appears to be openly willing to talk about uh, what his experience was in direct contact with the captains of those airplanes.
0: You're listening to Michael Dietrich, a professional pilot's view of the events of 9-11. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter.
1: I'm really amazed. I mean, America is the land of the free. And how quickly the pilots have been humbled into submission by promises of some pension fund or stock option or you
5: name it.
2: Well, let let me address that very briefly. I'm going to speak as a psychoanalyst now. I've been studying the relationship of a phenomenon we call denial in the entire culture in which we live, which is continuously elicited by propaganda regarding terror, etc. The pilots I've interviewed, over a a nearly three-year period, are all reluctant to talk for a number of reasons, particularly because they and their families are afraid, like virtually all other people in the United States, are terrorized. And the propaganda machine keeps doing it to them every day.
1: First of all, Michael, I would like to thank you for the clarity in which you tell your story of this. Um, My main question is, is there a site Or we could get these documents you speak of, first of all.
2: If you have a good enough investigative sense, you can find several of them on the Department of Defense website. And if they're not there now, you can go to the Internet Archives, which is based in uh, the Presidio in San Francisco. They archive every website that ever gets posted and keep it so that when pages are taken down from sites, you can still look at them. So, you can go to www.internetarchives.org and look for anything. If you know how to get into the DOD's documents and can stand reading all the details, you can find most of these. One of these documents I received with the description that it was top secret. So I'm not showing that one to anyone.
1: Okay, the second question I have, I get a sense from your talk, during the war games you had all of these artificial blips on the screen, Uh, did I miss that during the emergency, when it first occurred, do these blips suddenly disappear? Mm -hmm. Do they remain on there? And if they remain, it seems almost nonsensical that there would not be an emergency action uh, should something real occur that they would not suddenly drop out of sight.
2: Once again, I refer you to the phenomenon of denial. We have been trying, I personally have been trying, and I've been an investigative reporter about the environment for many years. I've been trying to get air traffic controllers to talk to me for nearly three years, and I have not yet been able to get one controller to speak to me about the events of 9-11. We are currently pursuing the six sighted controllers and the dispatcher from UA, Mr. Ballinger, to try to get on-camera interviews. To this point, we haven't been able to get anybody to show us anything, and the records are considered top national security. The audio videotapes of the control phenomena are being kept from us. We're not allowed to see them. And that's why we insist on a grand jury, with the leeway they have, to subpoena all the documents that are uh, relevant to all of the issues on 9-11. The families of the victims are never going to get peace. And this nation is never going to heal until we get open hearings in courts of law. That's my opinion. I'm concerned with the physical
5: evidence in as much as we do have. As Professor uh, Chostovsky was uh, alluding to, we need hard, hard evidence. Um, I'm just wondering, and you partly answered my question, how much we know about the actual path of the planes before they hit the buildings. And whether, in your opinion, a novice pilot, supposedly, I'm assuming, these guys were novice, novices, could maneuver those planes at the G-forces that would be necessary,
2: and how plausible you think, in your opinion, for these people to hit the buildings, or
5: hit a column 200 by 200 feet, traveling at over 500 miles an hour. I just want to get your opinion on that. Thank
2: you. Yeah, good, very, very good question. I have very strong opinions on that. I'll speak personally about it. I've flown Microsoft flight simulator a lot of times. In fact, I have my own on-screen professional flight simulator for a number of different aircraft It's real time, because that's how we stay current to fly in the clouds. Kay. Having said that, there is no way in hell, as experienced as I am in as many aircraft as I know how to fly, as many years as I've been doing it, in as many adverse conditions and as many weird countries as you can think of, there's no way that with the training these pilots allegedly had, that any of them could have performed any of the maneuvers that the aircraft actually did perform. Especially the alleged, although we do not have proof of the actual flight path of Flight 77 and the Pentagon, the description of it is beyond comprehension the G-forces alone to fly that aircraft in that tight a turn. It it allegedly turned 270 degrees at about 200 feet off the ground all the way around the Pentagon and came in the backside and hit it. I can't imagine anybody but a top world-class, top gun test pilot even considering doing a maneuver like that. But we still don't know if it really happened. So, as described, it's not possible. And speaking personally, If I were sitting in a 747, or a 767, and a hijacking occurred, and I was left to land that plane, you'd be watching a Tom Cruise movie with somebody talking me down, because I wouldn't have a clue how to do it.
1: Okay, uh, specifically, some videos I've seen about the, the four planes Make the claim that the transponders were turned off from the cockpits. I want to know if that's actually possible. I have my doubts about that. I I can't see the reason for that, having a manual uh, switch on the transponders. Uh, Secondly, very quickly, the black boxes. Is it physically possible for the black boxes to be consumed in the fires of the two towers?
2: Another couple good questions. Okay, as to the first one about transponders, that's there's so many issues, I could talk to you all day about all these things, but um, the issue with the transponders is just another red herring. I call it watch the birdie. It's a distraction. A transponder is a box, an electronic box, and it does have a manual switch on it because if it malfunctions, it can cause all kinds of havoc and the pilot needs to be able to turn it off and fly by other devices. Okay. The box in a sophisticated airplane, including my own, communicates in real time with various devices on the ground and in satellites, okay? When you turn a transponder off, only one thing happens, one simple, silly little thing. There's a box that identifies your particular aircraft, and in a sophisticated aircraft, like a new 757, 767, the box automatically pops up when the pilot starts the engine of that aircraft. It appears on the air traffic controller's screen who's going to be controlling that flight. It happens automatically. If the transponder gets turned off, some of the parameters of information that appear next to the little X that indicates that airplane disappear from the controller's screen. Under no conditions whatsoever is there any loss of information ever, whether it's the FAA, the military command center, and especially not NORAD in Cheyenne Mountain, which uses the most sophisticated surveillance equipment in the history of the universe, as far as we know. Okay. There is no way that a turned-off transponder would have the slightest impact on the control of those aircraft. And you asked the second part of a question. Uh, the, the black boxes, I have an opinion because of the analyses that are going on about what brought down the Twin Towers. Were they imploded? Were they lasered? Were they hit by plane, or oh, whatever. It's highly unlikely at the temperatures that are apparently recorded during each of the strikes that the black boxes would be destroyed. They're made to withstand fires at temperatures that jet fuel, which is nothing but refined kerosene burn. And I think it's still open to speculation. My personal opinion is the black boxes are safely tucked into a military facility somewhere, but that's an opinion.
1: Yeah. Yeah, yeah. What it is ain't exactly clear. There's a man with a gun over there.
0: You've been listening to Michael Dietrich, a professional pilot's view of the events of 9-11, from the International Citizens Inquiry into 9-11 in Toronto. Michael Dietrich may be reached by email at zena12 at earthlink.net. That's z e n a the number one, two, at earthlink.net. Guns and Butter is edited and produced by Yaro Mako and me, Bonnie Faulkner. To leave comments or order copies of shows, call 510-848-6767, extension 628. Email us at faulkner at gunsandbutter.net or visit our website at www.gunsandbutter.net.